The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Blair Brown. Hi, Blair. Hi. Nice to be here. You have a wealth, a ton of theater experience, but first, <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not say American television audiences certainly knew you as Molly Dodd, the title character in the days and nights of Molly Dodd, also as Jackie Kennedy in the miniseries Kennedy back in the 80s, a slew of movies. You made your movie premiere in 1973 in The Paper Chase, your first major role in The Choir Boys, and dozens of movies followed. On Broadway, a couple of years ago in 2000, winning the Tony for acting in Copenhagen, your Debut was like 30 years ago. In it was. The Three Penny Opera. Oh, My goodness. <laughs> and then in between, a couple times in I Cabaret. I started as a child. <laughs> yeah. you, you were true. a child then. That's of right. I was were. a child. That's yeah. Right. And a couple times in Cabaret. Uh-huh. So a it's ton true. of theater experience. Yeah. And now appearing at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center in a show called The Clean House. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting story to be sure. You and Jill Clayburgh play sisters, and you are the professional sister, the neat as a pin uh, sister. Everything has to be just perfect, and she is the one with a c- compulsion to clean. She is. Yes. It's actually it's a wonderful new play by Sarah Rule, who's um, a playwright who won the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, which is a prize that's given to the best play written by a woman in English from anywhere in the world. And that's when I first read this play, which was three years ago, and I was Oddly, one of the judges. This isn't nepotism, but I was one of the judges with Charles Isherwood, who then was writing for Variety, now now is the critic for the New York Times, and uh, Jim Houghton, who runs the Signature Theater here. And we all read this play, and, and the first time I read it, I'd never been a judge of a playwriting contest. We had 12 plays, and I read it, and I was laughing out loud in a room by myself, and then I was weeping at various... And I thought, well, you really... This was not the day to start reading these things because you're overreacting to this. So I put it aside, read it again, and had the exact same experience. And the odd thing was there are, there are judges in England, there are judges here. All of us had the exact same experience. It was... It feels... So simple. Her language is very simple. It's not, it's, not, it's not stop hard. It's not complex, long, convoluted things. It has a simplicity about it that is totally deceptive. And the fun of playing this play now, I never imagined that I would be in it, um, is that and truly every performance is significantly different from the next. I've never been in a production. I mean, I have worked for a thousand years. I've never been in a, in a run of a play that varies so much from night to night. What is it? Some audiences, it has aspects of magic realism um, in it. it. Some audiences find it very funny. Others are quite reserved. A lot of the play is about how laughter and tears are side by side. Um, and here's this young woman, she's only now just 31, this play was written several years ago, um, who deals with big subjects, um, death, uh, infidelity, uh, betrayal by siblings, very complicated, uh, dark subjects in this very light way that if you're not careful can turn into sitcom, which it's not. So as actors, it really it's really like surfing. You just have to get out there on your board and ride the wave tonight of how this audience takes it. It's really fascinating. And it's play. also kind of a metaphor. Your character, Lane, her house is neat as a pin. Mm-hmm. Her professional life is so 
together, yet her personal life is falling apart. There's chaos underneath. There's chaos underneath, exactly. Well, it's also interesting because it's very rare. I mean, Jill and I feel very fortunate. You get a chance to work with a peer. Women very rarely do. I mean, even if you look at the classical repertoire, it's usually there's the girl and then there may be an old woman and that's kind of it. Uh, You know, even in terms of movies and television, there are often shows with two guys, buddy pictures and stuff. That doesn't happen usually for women at any age, which is kind of curious. And, of course, you've got Vanessa Ospilaga as well. Then we have Venice, who's younger, and then Concetta Tomé, who is, again, a peer. So it's a curious story, too, because I think it's about – you see – Another thing that the story is about is two women, one from Argentina, one from Brazil, who have a different take on life and death. I mean, I remember emailing Sarah at one point. I was narrating. A, I do a lot of audiobooks, an Isabel Allende book, her new one, Inez of the Soul, um, Inez of My Soul. And in it, in Chile, death is a washerwoman which is so different than what North Americans or Europeans think of death, the Grim Reaper, Mm -hmm. you know, very frightening kind of images. There, death is a washerwoman. She's someone in your house. My vision was it was an ample woman that smells like fresh laundry comes and puts her arms around you, and that's what death is. So within, again, this play that could be taken for uh, purely a comedy, there are some quite profound notions about life and death and how, how you look at things so that Two of the female characters help the other two, the sort of waspy, the two waspy women, Jill and myself, see life in a different way. And audiences either ride that or are very skeptical. It's fascinating. Well, we should explain that your character, Lane, has hired this young Brazilian woman to be her cleaning woman. And cleaning makes her sad. She right. doesn't like to clean. She doesn't like to clean. <laughs> she doesn't and like your to clean. sister, who is played by Jill Clayburg, is a compulsive cleaner. Loves to clean, yes, and they deceive me. They <laughs> this is all, it's been a very interesting show to play for student audiences as well because there are matinees in which you kind of have the oldest of subscribers and then young students who come at it in very different ways. And the students are very vocal about uh, – there are times when I'm very harsh with my sister and there's a sort of, uh-oh, they really understand that. And then when my husband brings the new woman in his life to the house, adults, you know, kind of go, well, this or that. Kids are like, uh-oh. Bad news, and actually, the sympathy often goes towards Lane at that point because they see how hurt she is. So it's very, it's very interesting. There are even nights will come out, and where there are th- the play starts with three monologues. Vanessa Aspiago, who plays the maid, has a, a monologue in Portuguese. She tells a joke in Portuguese with no translation, and then Jill and I each have monologues about our lives, our situations, and you can feel sometimes at the beginning, aha, this is a house that's. On to Vanessa's story, or here's a house that's on to Lane's, or here's on to Virginia's. And it may play that way for the whole first act. By the time you get to the second act, the play again is so beautiful, it's opened out so that you understand the difficulty of everybody's life, the problems that all of them have. It is a play that, in structure and the way it unfolds, opens your heart to seeing things differently. It's kind of magical. I'm very fascinated by what you said about the fact that you were a judge for this award. <laughs> yeah. You know, we we know that performers, artists are being judged all the time. I'm curious about how you read a play when you're judging it simply on its merits and how you read a play to decide is this something you want to be in? Very differently. Um, reading the plays to to award a prize to a writer is quite different. Um, I found myself reading very carefully and making sure that even if this play was not to my taste, was it a very good play? Um, it, it's a different kind of standard. It's it's very 
if you're reading something that you're thinking about working in, it has to be something you just fall in love with because um, this is what you're going to spend a lot of time doing. So that's quite different. And and I also for me, I've always wanted to be in the best play that was available to me rather than necessarily the best part. I'd rather be in a do a small part in a or a supporting part in a really great play than do a leading role in a not so good play. Um, and that's uh, that's not true of all actors. In fact, Michael comes to and Phil Bosco and, and I, when we were doing Copenhagen on Broadway, we did a talk back after. And they said, they asked this very question, how do you find a part? And I said this. And both Phil and Michael went, what? what? I don't. <laughs> I said, well, why else do you think I'm in this play? You guys have much better part in this play than I have. But it's a really good play. So having read the play not as something you were going to necessarily be in yeah. – when – I don't know if you were simply offered the role or if you were asked to come in and read for the role. But did you have to reread the play? Did you have to think about the play in a different way? Well, it was interesting. I have to say I wasn't I wasn't drawn to playing this character. I loved this play. I went to see it in New Haven. I went to see it when it was done at the Wilma Theater in uh, Philadelphia. Um, I stayed in touch with Sarah Rule because I, I had then sort of met her and, uh, about what I'd seen and what I saw and she told me about other productions and I tracked it. It wasn't one of those things where I thought I must play this part. Now, I don't feel that much anyway these days because I have acted for so long and I've had so many good parts. They're not – I mean the ones – the parts I want to play, I can count on one hand at this point. The parts that I know, um, I can count on one hand that I'd like to play now. But I wanted to be part of this Experience. I thought, I want to know this play now from the inside out. Um, and I'm, it's been a thrill to do. It's been really interesting to do. So at what point did you say to yourself, I want to play that role? Um, I got a call from Lincoln Center offering me the part, and I sort of thought, yes, yes. But the idea really hadn't occurred to you prior to their call? Well, actually, I'd, I'd been offered it in some of the regional productions, uh-huh. and I had said no. Uh-huh. Um, but now it was in my home turf, mm. and I'd been directing some this year, and I thought, I would actually now like to be directed. I'd like to be on the inside of a play again, not be the one that has to make all the decisions about what the play is, and particularly because I knew this play. So it's been a a really rich experience um, to see this play from the inside and from the outside. So since you are so familiar with it, having read it, having judged it, now that you have been doing it for Mm -hmm. several months, you are in Mm -hmm. it, what what new information have you learned about the characters, about the show itself? Well, this is so strange. I learned something last night. And in fact, I just, I just came from a reading, a, a two-week workshop that um, Mark Wing Davy and the Goodman Theater has been doing of a, of a play, an earlier play of Sarah's called The Passion, Passion Play, which is about is three plays. I guess it's this now stop art model. Why don't you have to have three plays? Um, but actually, she wrote this long ago. Um, and I was talking to some of the actors there about what it is to play because, as I say, the tone is very difficult to find. And you have to be very careful that you don't end up, as I say, too comic or too whimsical or, you know, there's very, very tough information in the midst of all of this, but there's a very light manner. And I said, you know, it's so odd. Last night, um, one Concetta Tomei, who's in our play, who, her mother died yesterday, and she had gone back to Los Angeles um, for this week. So her absolutely marvelous understudy, Marilyn, is on. And um, there's a, a scene that we have that wasn't just playing right. It's very tricky. It's very – the language is very spare. So I was talking to the stage manager. I said, you and Marilyn, I should run over this just to sort of get in because it's different, you know, when every person plays it. And he said, well, what are you thinking? And I said, well, in this scene, 
her character, this is the woman who's having the affair with my husband who is now dying of bone cancer. I, as a doctor, have come to see if she's all right against my better instincts but knowing it's the right thing to do. And at the end of this where she says, am I crazy to refuse hospital care? And I say to her, no, you're not. And here, it's a quite extraordinary big scene when you realize a doctor who never likes to say, yes, you're coming to the end of this. There's nothing we can do to save you. And this is the lover of your husband, the husband that you love. Um, there's a very simple moment, which will sound strange to the listeners, where she says, want an apple? And I go, wait, did, did my husband is, have anything to do with this apple? She says, just eat this apple. I don't know who picked this apple. And I eat it, and she watches me, and I say, ah, it's good. Now, that's all the lines. It's like four lines. I realized in talking to the stage manager and, and the actress about what it is that, of course, this is actually the apple of knowledge. This is this, this Brazilian woman, who, I mean, Argentinian woman, who is giving me this saying, bite into life, accept the fullness of all of it, stop labeling all of this in those four lines. Now, I had never, I knew what I was playing, but I never sort of thought, oh, it's also working on a poetic and mythological level, which is this is, this is the fruit of knowledge and that you're being And you've been playing this offered. show for a couple of months. Yeah. Hmm. And I thought Sarah Rule started as a as a poet. She was a poet at Brown, and Paula Vogel, the great playwright and great teacher, Sarah wanted to do a, a project as a poet. And Paula said, well, I will mentor you, but only if you write a play. And that's what's extraordinary about this young woman's writing, is that it works on all those levels. It's very simple and very true and very naturalistic on one level so now are you, and are, poetic on another. Are you going to ask Sarah Rule, is that what you intended? Is that what you were meaning No, you all this? of a sudden I thought, oh, what a dummy. That's, of course, what she always intended. Or, or, or she might say... <laughs> I'm the dummy. No, or she, she might say, no, it's just an apple. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sometimes <laughs> an apple Actually, is just, just an apple. just an apple, exactly. <laughs> I've learned with Sarah Rule that she always knows. That she always knows. <laughs> and she never shames you. She, she never shames you for what you don't know. But we've been playing it right, but just now it has a whole other level. So yeah, I've learned something every day. <laughs> well, we've been talking about your most recent work, but let's mm. let's go back and talk about your your start in theater. You grew up in Washington, right. but you got your theater training in Canada, leading some to think you are Canadian. I know. What, what took I was, you up to Canada? Well, actually, it, well, I became an actress by default. Really, I was um, in school, and I wanted to be a doctor. Irony of ironies. <laughs> but now I, you just play them. <laughs> I play them all the time. Actually, the world is safer, I think, with my just playing them and actually practicing. But I thought, actually, I've got a wonderful coat. Now we were quite near um, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, and I have an ID badge. And I thought, well, I could go over and do flu shots, uh, you know, during between shows, <laughs> make a little money on the side here. Um, but I, I wanted to be a doctor, and I didn't really like school, and that's kind of problematic. And I then, I, through friends in England, they said, well, there – I don't know where – I truly don't know where I got the idea. Like, I'll go to acting school. I think it's really because I didn't – I wasn't about to get married. I had nothing. I had no occupation possible because I was in the thick of the baby boom. Baby boom. So I had friends who were graduating summa cum laude from Smith, Radcliffe, and were going to Catherine Gibbs, Katie Gibbs, which was a place where you learned secretarial skills. So I thought, I have nothing to offer. Um, and I didn't really want to go to work. So I thought, mm, okay, maybe I'll go to acting school. And it really was, a, uh, I thought I would bide my time until I figured out what I wanted to do. So I saw – somehow I heard there were acting schools in England. I mean I didn't know anything about acting. I'd barely done any in school. So I wrote 
wrote applications. This was pre-internet, so you know it was a, it was a timely thing. And I had just missed the cutoff for the following year. And friends whose brother and sister-in-law were buskers in London, meaning they played music on the street for money, <laughs> said, "Oh, I could come and live with them." And they would get me a job on Ready, Steady, Go as a go-go dancer. Mm-hmm. So I told my parents, I'm an only child from a very conservative Republican family, <laughs> that this is what I was going to do. And they were apoplectic. And my father was talking to friends of his in the Canadian embassy the next day in total despair. And they said, oh, there's a drama school in Montreal uh, that, I mean, per- weirdly, Michel Saint-Denis had set up before he set up the Juilliard School. And it was bilingual. Well, I spoke French very well, so I thought, Oh, okay, my dad told me. And he did something very uncharacteristic. He said, here is a ticket and here is a date and you show up in Montreal. And this is, so I was like, all right. So I went up. I was too stupid to know that when you start an audition, I started off and I, I couldn't remember my lines. My two pieces were Medea. Uh, so I was talking about after I had dashed my children's Which you'd have never up. gotten to show off on uh, Ready, Steady, Go. No, and sure. I was actually, what, 18, 19 at the time. So mm-hmm. my children, my children, and the mother in Long Day's Journey, right? So terribly appropriate for a 19-year-old to play. And I lost my place, and I said, I have to start again. Well, they thought this was genius. They thought I had this great sort of presence of mind. I thought what they didn't know was that I was a total blank slate. I didn't know that that wasn't a good idea. So ignorance in that way served me terribly well because they sort of thought, well, gosh, this is a person who really uh, knows what they're up to. And it was quite the opposite. And you got yourself onto a track of doing classical work. Well, I did. And once I got there, I thought, oh, my God. I mean, it is the sort of Juilliard system. It's three years. It's totally devoted to theater. I mean, the most academic work is like theater history and um, and, you know, analysis of plays in that way. But there's nothing else academic. We did period dance. We learned madrigals. Um, we learned fence. We learned judo. We had all kinds of voice work um, and diction work. And we just did plays. But then you got out of school and you did a season at Stratford. We were Canada. kind of – in an ideal world, you were fed into a children's theater company at Stratford. Once again, Ignorance served me well, which was I got offered – a contract to come and be in children's theater. And I, the thought of playing a tree at 8 in the morning in Shakutami or whatever, <laughs> or London, Ontario, I, I was, a, was really anathema. So I said no. And no one had ever or not many people had ever said no to Stratford to do children's theater. And I got a tiny little review, an absolutely maudlin little review called Love and Maple Syrup um, from the Gordon Lightfoot song. Go together like the sticky winds of winter when we meet. That's the Gordon Lightfoot lyric. And it was, a, I think, a fairly awful review of Canadian songs and poetry. And this seemed to me much more fun. So I went and did that. And then the next thing I knew, I got a call from Stratford offering me parts, um, which was very unusual and was very lucky. So but not, not children's plays? Nothing to do with children's plays. So yeah. what shows did they offer you? What, what did you, um, what I did played you do? Mariah in School for Scandal that Michael Langham directed. I played one of the ladies in waiting um, in Merchant of Venice, and I understudied both those parts. And I, uh, I understudied Imogen in Cymbeline and was also one of the ladies in waiting. But the rep system was so – was fascinating then. You know, we played all these plays in rep over the summer – um, you were understudying major parts. I did get to go on as Lady Teasel for several weeks, which then years later Michael Langham called and said, come and do Lady Teasel at the Guthrie. It was – I was lucky enough to be folded into that rep system. So 
you know, you do Shakespeare eight times a week, and you just listen to it. And even as cynical and arrogant as you are as a student, which is everyone is terrible except for me and the people and the few people that I like, which is age appropriate. But you hear those plays, and they teach you, and you're in front of audiences on particularly for Stratford, Ontario, or the Guthrie, in the most exciting stages in the world, you know. And then speaking of Shakespeare, how did you make them move to New York, to Off-Broadway, where you, where you did a comedy of errors? Well, you know, I, I, I did seasons all across Canada, Shaw right. Festival. Uh, we started a company at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. I was at the Vancouver Playhouse. I went to Calgary. I went to, um, where else, Prince Edward Island. I worked all around the country. And then what happened was Canadians were getting into Canadian content. How are Canadians different from Americans and from Brits? And, of course, this was, of, A, no interest in, uh, to me, and also I didn't even understand. Um, so... Michael Langham offered me a season at the Guthrie. So I came back. And then once I was back on in America, I realized that there was a kind of energy and the Canada had been, and I don't, I don't mean this at all critically, it had been a great place to begin because the rep system was so alive and well. And you could also work for the CBC, mm. which had, you know, short story anthologies on television. So I learned to do that. That didn't really exist in America. So I'd had a fantastic way to begin. And then when I got here... It was really time for me to come to New York and see what was there because there was always a sense that that's where you had to get to, you know, which it still exists. Mm -hmm. It's true and not true um, as it was then, true and not true. Great work is happening all across the country and all across Canada. But, you know, you need that imprimatur a lot. A lot of us need to just know we can make it there and then you can go ahead and do whatever you want to do. So I came to New York and then I was lucky I got a job right away at the at the. New York Shakespeare Festival. Well, you got several jobs at the Shakespeare Festival. I did, I was, yeah. I was fascinated looking at the cast of that comedy of errors. It sounds like that's one we could spend a long time on. I but know. it's just worth noting that in 1975, you were in a show along with Ted Danson, Danny DeVito, Roxanne Hart, Jeffrey Jones, Linda, Linda Lavin, Lavin, Donnie Scardino. It is an amazing – Michael Tucker. Michael Tucker. Michael Tucker. An, an amazing cast. And here's the irony is you know who had the non-speaking parts and were only in the play because John Pasquin, the director – wanted to employ them because they never got any work. The non-speaking parts were Danny DeVito and Ted Danson. <laughs> so that gives you an idea. So let that be a lesson to all young actors. You never know what's but, ahead of you. But your work at the public did take you to certainly what's talked about as a landmark production, which was the Three Penny Opera mm-hmm. production, which mo- many people know as the Raul Julia production, yeah, yeah, also the Richard Foreman production. That's right. For many people, that is one of the two productions of mm-hmm. Three Penny Opera in the U.S. that worked. Yeah. People talk about it. What was what was so remarkable about that show? Well, I, first off, I think it's a show that has to be reinvented by every generation. It, you know, I mean, it was it was done by by young men at that time in a in a political situation that cried out for that play. So it's one of those I think that needs to be reinvented. And at that moment in 1976, Richard Foreman was that guy. He was certainly one of the most original voices in New York theater at the time. He does have a sense of a poor man's theater. I mean, it's very tricky when you do that play with a lot of money. That's not quite the point. And I think we saw that happen recently. <laughs> We've seen that happen a couple of times in New York that uh, that have failed because it's about – it is about poverty. Uh, it's not about chicness. It's about poverty. And Richard had the right kind of scruffy, downtown, intellectual – 
theatrical sense that you need to have for that play at any time. So I, I think, I mean, visually it was stunning. It was, uh, it was very original. It had these three pits in which all of us started out and uh, all mingled around there. In fact, you know, we just had great – there was so much acting going on down in those pits that you could just see sort of us from sort of chest up, the high chest up. And it was all the beggars and all the principals. And then the Mac the Knife song was being sung up top. And all the stories were getting played out down there for the evening. It was really fantastic. Did you have any musical training? Did you consider yourself a musical theater performer? You'd been doing Shakespeare and all I that. I never uh, thought of it that way because actually the theater school was a classical training school. We did not learn Broadway tunes. We did not learn camera technique. We did not learn how to write a resume. It was truly about classical theater. But I didn't know how to sing because we took singing. We mm. sang madrigals. But mm-hmm. we, did, we did take singing. We took a lot of voice production, um, Kristen Linkletter's kind of voice production. And then when I was at the Guthrie for two seasons before I came to New York, um, that rep system was still alive and well, so much so that we had voice instruction still there and movement instruction. It was part of what you did. And it was brilliant. I mean, it's one thing that's so lacking now in this country. I mean, I felt it as an actor and I've I experience it now as a director. There are times when you're working that you just think, I wish we could call the voice coach up right now and send this actor or send myself downstairs to work on this because is as an actor, it is about constantly training. And it's not so much about classes because you need it to apply to the work you're doing. I mean, it's what we all do individually. Every time I sing, I study with Joan Later in the city, who's a superb teacher. And when I first started studying, I walked in and out came Julie Andrews. And then after me, in came Betty Buckley. I thought, well, she's good. I see she's good. <laughs> and comes Patti Lapone and then, you know, <laughs> Michelle Paul. It's like all kinds of great singers were coming in and out of there. So you do that on your own. But the, the richness of a regional theater in those days of a rep system was that it was part of the company. So you could really grow in a consistent and more cohesive way. So I had been trained. I, when I auditioned for Three Penny Opera, I didn't know because I'd never auditioned for a musical in my life that you were meant to bring a pianist, that you were meant to bring A, music, and B, a pianist. Um, and so I had no music and I decided that I would sing uh, Heart Like a Wheel by Linda Ronstadt. I started singing. And once again, actually, I started too high. So I had to start again. And r- I could see Richard Foreman and Joe Papp. They were like, oh, God, this woman is hopeless, hopeless. And the musical director was Stanley Silverman. And Stanley had done the music for uh, School for Scandal, both at Stratford and at the Guthrie. And so he said to them, she can do this, okay? <laughs> she can actually do this. So I got a call back, and then, in fact, I could, in fact, do it. But it, I was just saved by Stanley Silver. But otherwise, uh, I wouldn't have been in it. Was it a cappella? Yes, because I was too stupid to know. And the callback, then what did you do? Did you then I, I, think the, I think, I don't actually remember, but I think the callback was probably singing the duet or something, singing something from something the show. From so the show. I, yeah. <laughs> I want to dredge up a, a particular obscure story about you in that production, because if I follow right what I read, you were Lucy Brown in the show. To but begin with, yeah. as the show <clears throat> went on, there was a point where you were out of the show, mm-hmm. Ellen Green got sick, this is her true. understudy got sick, and you came in with virtually no preparation after yeah. months away from the show to play another role? I got called. I had left the show because I got this wonderful opportunity to do Captains and the Kings, um, from which I met Richard Jordan, from whom 
I have a son. So my life changed. Um, I'd gone off to do this miniseries. And, and in those days, you did not leave shows. You just didn't leave shows. And if you did, particularly with Joe, he was Joe Papp. Uh, there was hell to pay. Somehow I got him at a good moment. I don't know what it was because I he he wasn't mad at me. And uh, of course, at first I thought, well, he's glad I'm gone. And I was, you know, actors being always paranoid. And I had come back to New York, and I got a call one morning, and they said, uh, "Oh hi, uh, it's uh, Joe Papp's office. Joe wants to talk to you." It's like what? I'd never gotten a call at home from Joe Papp, who was then you know God in in New York in his own estimation and in those of many others. And he said, uh, so you're back. I said, yeah. He said, uh, you know Jenny's songs, right? I said, well, I, I mean, I heard them over the box every night. I heard them, you know, and I, and I – he said, uh, well, Ellen is sick. Ellen Green is sick and her understudy is sick and there are only about two whores left in the whorehouse at that point. <laughs> Can you come and play Jenny? I said, but Joe, I was never on stage when she was. I don't know any of the blocking. He said, well, she hardly speaks. There's the tango with Raul. And uh, he said, I think you can do this. And so I said, OK. So I went in and I worked with Raul in the afternoon and we learned the tango. And Jenny, in fact, only had a few lines. And I went over all the music because I thought, well, I could sort of sing it. And every time I had a few lines, all the beggars would appear from wherever they were. And they would physically move me to where I had to be. <laughs> so I was like one of those Indonesian puppets. It seemed like a brilliant Richard Foreman conception well, it was. for that night. It was actually incredibly smart. So I was moved all night by a sort of host of beggars. And we were all up for the challenge. And it was the most thrilling night of my life. It was just – it was absolutely stupendous. Then – I had to go on for the matinee the next day, which was less than stupendous. And someone who actually told me only recently, they said, well, you know the Maggie Smith story about understudies? I went, no. They said, Maggie Smith said, darling, make sure your understudy goes on a second time. Because the first time, everyone's brilliant, you know, and everyone rallies to help. And then by the second time, people are going... Well, you know, it isn't so good when she does such a time. So I was living proof of that. And they weren't exactly moving you around the second time. No, they were moving oh, they me were the second time. Around. And then Ellen came back the next night. I think, yeah, she was smart enough to come back and save the show. But it was a pretty thrilling experience. <laughs> well, what did you do after Three Penny Opera then? What was your next Broadway uh, experience? Actually, then I started doing a lot more television. I, th- uh-huh. I can't remember. I, I'm not so good at chronology. I had done um, – I did plays at the Long Wharf. I did plays, uh, a lot of plays. I said I wasn't afraid to travel because uh-huh. that's what I thought actors did. So I was actually not one of those people that thought when you come to New York, you stay in New York. Once you've made it, you stay. Yeah, or once you even get started. Even, you know, lots of people now, before they are even doing they'd rather be a waiter and then act. And I did always kind of think it was better to act somewhere rather than, um, than not. But I did plenty, the American premiere of David Harris played plenty at the arena stage and um, did I did lots of plays all around. And when you ended up back on Broadway, it was actually it was a, a mm. break of, of over ten years. It was in a mm-hmm. show that was written for you mm-hmm. by David Hare, The Secret Rapture, mm-hmm. which in many ways became more famous for a whole press blow up around yes. it. That yes, that Frank right. Rich didn't like it and yeah. other people and David Hare wrote to him and took him yeah. to task and other critics it got was involved. Really rough. What was what, what was that like? Because here was a show that was going to be a great that was created for you yeah. and it became something Oof. totally else. It was very painful. Um I had been doing Molly Dodd and actually I was doing it in a hiatus from Molly Dodd and my son was very little. Um and I loved this troubled, beautiful play, I think is an extraordinary play. And 
it got to be one of those things. It's funny. I've had the experience, fortunately, of being on different sides of when the paper of record um, goes after a play positively and when it goes after a play negatively. And I've experienced both, and it's fairly daunting. Um, I must say at this point, I'm happy to say after only 30 years in theater, I'm now sort of almost ambivalent about reviews. But it was extremely painful. And I I don't read reviews. I I learned early on not to read them because they're not helpful. Um, If they're good, they they fix something in your mind that you is now spoiled for you as an actor. The way she moves her hand or it's lovely how her voice does such and such is now dead to you. And you can often find out I actually asked someone, a friend of mine, about a moment I have in this play. I said, Did any of the reviews talk about this particular moment? And they said, Oh yes, most of them did. And I said, Okay, because that once we've been reviewed has never been the same in an audience. There is an awareness that's different. Um, that is, it's really interesting to see, as I say, and it can happen in good and, and bad ways. So that was actually quite excruciating. And I gather that the way in which the play was reviewed and certainly David's response to it, it was all quite personal towards me and towards him. Um, so I, as I say, I sort of backed off of it. And in fact, I remember that opening night very well because Joe Papp, like like many artistic directors, likes to make people feel as good as possible about if it's if it's work he's proud of. I mean, he didn't suffer fools. If it was work he didn't like, it was unhappy. But he was very proud of this show. And he, that night, very specifically, you could tell that it was a, not a good review, um, the first, the big paper. And Joe came to us and said, but it's, it's great for all the actors. And I was still young enough to believe that was true. <laughs> um, but it was, it, it was, it was very, yeah, it was very painful. And you have to learn those things. You do have to learn them. I see with younger friends, they have to go through an, an experience of some sort. Well, speaking of reviews, do your friends nowadays volunteer the information, volunteer the reviews to you? No, I have trained everyone and my family (laughs) and in my family as well, which is, you know, the worst thing is, is is you can tell you don't have to read anything. It's Uh in the air. It's like you can, you can, you can sniff it. You can sniff it in the house, but you can sniff it in the, in the theater Mm -hmm. as well. And of course, the other problem is after you've opened the next day, if your phone doesn't ring all day, you know you crashed and burned, right? If the phone does, with people just going, hi, how are you? You think, oh, so it was a good review. So I used to actually sort of turn my answering machine off. When I had that sort of run a Broadway place, I would turn my answering machine off the day after, and I would go up to Wave Hill, which is a lovely spot up in the Bronx with a great garden, and I would sit up there all day and write thank you notes for my flowers and just be out of the fray either way. Several of your Broadway shows that you've done, uh, Arcadia and Copenhagen specifically, Mm -hmm. are shows that people talk about the intellectual content so much. And I'm wondering what the experience is like inside those shows because for some people, they're they're really set up sometimes as being – seeming so daunting for an audience. Mm -hmm. Yet in in both of those cases, they were – incredibly humanized. What What's it like to play in something which people think is a challenge? Oh, it's thrilling. It's so much fun. I, I, I Actually, this is a place where I wish the papers would be um, more encouraging and supportive and get get real. I know even with the, the stop part of Coast of Utopia, the weekend before it opened, the, uh, one of the, the paper, uh, 
sort of said, this is what you need to read, which was preposterous. And I know Tom Stoppard wrote a piece saying, this is absurd. It's a play. Show up. Um, It's funny in those plays with the people that I know who are daunted by it. In fact, I had one good friend who didn't even come back after Copenhagen because he was afraid he would say something stupid. And this is a very smart man who is a director but who worries about his education, which is is crazy because both Tom Stoppard and, and Michael Frayn are very good at actually writing plays that if you just sit there, it will come back again. Um, in, Cop- in Copenhagen, very much so. Most things were were said three different times. Really important points, scientific points or moral points came around at least three times. They were there for you to find. It's just a question of coming open-hearted and open-minded and just letting it wash over you. There is no quiz at the end is what you always want to remind people. And it's good to experience it and then read it and then come again if you like because it will be richer. It will definitely be richer after you've read it. But, but I don't think it's good to read it before you come. In a way, what you're saying is kind of like you know, teachers tell the students what they're going to tell them, then they tell them, then they tell them what they've told them That's just right. to be sure they really it's get it. It's actually very much like that yeah, with really. those good writers. It is. But for an actor, it's really thrilling because it's – there's just so much to work on all the time. I mean, I know when I did Copenhagen, I was also so proud. It was the same, It was actually the same in Arcadia. I was so proud to stand on the stage eight times a week and talk about things that really mattered to me, you know, really, really mattered um, on a small and intimate level and on a macro level. And uh, that's just wonderful. I'm not a big fan of naturalism. So I like a hard play. I like to see a hard play and I like to be in a hard play. I like a play that works on a lot more levels. I'm not I'm kind of bored with naturalism as a viewer and as a participant. Hmm. Well, certainly then that explains yeah. you, why you would be drawn to the clean house. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it it's true. Yeah. Hmm. I like those puzzles. I mean, I think naturalism is done better now in television and movies. That's what they are. And that's what naturalistic acting is. You can't do it any better than that. And stage acting is something else again. And I I sort of worry a little, again, both as an actor and as a director, about some of the of – the, not harm that's come, but the harm is too dramatic a word, but uh, is coming to American acting between what got passed down from the actor's studio and what is demanded now in television and film. I mean, if you're a New York actor – particularly the young actors, they have so many auditions for for uh, television shows all the time where they have to learn pages and pages every day of just stuff, you know, which by and large is just stuff, and it has to be made real. That's fine, except theatrical acting is something else again. And classical acting is, is something else. Is yet, yeah. again. yet again. And I wanted to ask because certainly – the least natural approach to classical acting may have been when you played Prospera in The yeah. Tempest. And yeah. people will think I've just made an error, but I've That's not. That's right. No. What was it what like a difference to a vowel play makes. <laughs> that role in that play, which was written for a man yeah. and played by men for centuries? Well, it, it, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. I mean, it was fascinating personally for me to do. That's one of the parts I'm absolutely anxious to play again. I really want to play Prospera um, again. It was – it really came from a conversation I had with Emily Mann who runs the McCarter Theater. I had just done an Athel Fugard play there. And I said, Emily, in a few years, I want to play Lear. Now, I don't know whether it's Queen Lear and or whether we go to the convention 
that actresses used to have of Sarah Bernhardt, Duza, uh, uh, playing Hamlet or Lauren Zaccio or what, uh, playing, what, it, playing it as a man. As a man. Yeah. I said, I don't know which way it goes and let's just do it in a studio kind of setting. It's just, it's my favorite play and I want to play it. And I wish we had a conversation because Emily and I are peers about how absurd it is that actually this generation of feminists did not take on those big parts. Diane Venor is the only person I know who played Hamlet. Why didn't Meryl? Why didn't, you know, why, it's very curious that we didn't do that. Since it had been done even at the turn of the century. Exactly. It had been, yeah, I mean, it was a sort of a sort of standard fare. So I said, I want to do that. And then I got a call from her some months later saying um, about Lear. I said, no, no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Um, she said, for me, Lear is about fathers and daughters. That's what I need to work out. I said, okay, I got that. But she said, how about Prospera? So we looked at the play and said, let's read it and see. Maybe it's a bad idea. And at, the, at that point, we didn't know anyone who had done it that way. In fact, we, there were two people that had done it. But um, So we started and we read it and it was transformative. All we changed were a couple of pronouns, he to she, duke to duchess, and that was about it. And cut the thing about my wife because we thought it's not that advanced to play. Um, <laughs> and what was fascinating were, were two different things. One, it's very different for a mother to prepare her daughter for marriage to go out to go out into the world than for a father. Entirely different. And it really came home to both Emily and me at one point when I'm watching when Prospero, Prospero watches the love scene with her daughter the first time that the daughter falls in love. I just, I burst into tears. And Emily sort of welled up and we realized, oh, it's that moment because what happens to the same-sex parent with a child is that you are back there in that moment in your life. Now, a father would not feel that. The father has more wariness about what's the boy going to do and, you know, there's that that kind of thing. But it was quite different. Mm. The other thing that was very interesting, and we only put our finger on it thanks to a student matinee, there was a lot of resistance, interestingly, even before we did it to the idea of a woman playing this from several people in the theater community and certainly from some writers, which I found interesting. It's like, give us a shot. You can not like what we do, but I don't get the objection to the concept. One student matinee, we we talked to them afterwards, and this one boy stood up and said, "Um, I didn't like your character. And I said, really, why? And he said, I didn't like seeing a mother who was that angry. And I then realized that this was a problem for a lot of people, that we are used, just as with Abu Ghraib, what's the image that people have most often is Lindy English with the dog collar, right? Now, we've seen on a daily basis atrocious pictures of men behaving badly towards other men. But we don't have that tolerance for women. And thank God. But it was really interesting then to do, and I I was – teach a little up at MIT from time to time and was doing a class about this with them. I said, what do you think of this idea? I said, if you do the play now, Prospera would have to bring either Caliban or Ariel out on a dog leash so that we actually remember, experience what torture is. Because I've seen The Tempest a million times. I've never been made uncomfortable by, you know, I'm going to do this, that, and the other to you. And you think, right, because sadly we have a tolerance for that. So it's an exciting play to do. It was disturbing. We did it just as there was the build-up to the American invasion in Iraq. 
And in fact, we had to miss a day of rehearsal. We had to change a day of rehearsal because I was getting people to go to Washington to march for that. That play had a whole other resonance because it was a country about to create a war, um, go to war. And I must say, I thought at the time, I would love to do this play at a peaceable time, but I may not live that long. Mm. Um, that's the beauty of those plays, that they have a resonance in the time that you're in. Getting back to musical theater. <laughs> yes. How's now that for a, a, a change of <laughs> Yes, subject. yes. Musicals are fun. Cabaret. You were in that twice. How yeah. did it come about the first time? How did it come about the, the second time? The second time. You played Fräulein Schneider both, both times. Both times. Well, I got a call. I had seen Cabaret and just adored it. And I got a call. In, in the original? Um, no, the, the, the one, the, the Sam Mendes and, and Rob Marshall production. Uh-huh. Um, with Alan Cumming and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, that one. And, and I had loved it. And I got a call saying they want you to come in for Cabaret that um, Natasha Richardson and Mary Louise Wilson were leaving. And they were interested in replacing those two. Everybody else in the cast was staying because it was only six months old and it was just a huge hit. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm too old for Sally and way too young for Fraulein Schneider. But I was wrong. I wasn't actually. <laughs> and so um, – Sam Mendy said, come and sing. He said, I know you can act, but come and sing. And I started working on it, and I just I fell madly in love with it. I, I fell right into a German accent, which was very curious. And then I realized my grandmother was German, and she died when I was four. So all of a sudden, learning these sounds was like I, uh, putting on a comfortable sweater. I knew exactly where I was. It was the strangest, most marvelous experience. And uh, so I got the part, and Jennifer Jason Lee came in, and we played it for about six or nine months. And then life went on, and we did. I did other things. I then, I guess, I did James Joyce's The Dead, the musical with Chris Walken, and based on on that uh, James Joyce story. And I did Copenhagen, and then they were they were Roundabout was going to close the show. They were trying to bring back as many people who had done it originally. So I went back in happily, happily, happily because it is, was such an interesting piece to do. I mean, talk about the sort of political and personal and theatrical coming together. There was a night when Kofi Annan came when we were doing this, and there was through the whole company, it's all the dancers, people with politics on various sides. It's not about you know being for or against anything. But there was Kofi Annan who was actually dealing on a daily basis with lives that were as imperiled as the ones that we were playing. It added a whole other layer to the beauty and profundity of that piece. You know, you can go to that and it was fabulous to do in a situation where people were drinking and eating and, you know, it was wonderful to do this play that actually is working again on so many levels. Then it must have been quite a change to go into James Joyce's The Dead and and do a very different sort of show. Well, it was and that was weirdly, I mean, that was probably the most naturalistic of musicals ever Uh done. There's a moment for those people who never saw it, there was a fantastic moment when it actually is a piece of writing because it is based on the short story. Richard Nelson did the, did the script for it. Very faithful adaptation. And it is about a musical evening in this house. So it was very well suited to going into um, a musical form. And at the beginning when the, when the family all gathers, there's the moment where the two sisters and the niece stand and sing to the family, and they have their backs to the audience. And you just thought, that is the moment that separates this audience out, whether they're buying this. And that was the moment that so many people said to me it was fascinating. They said, it's like when you're walking along the street and you look inside a house and you see a party going, that that's how they felt, that they were outside looking in on this intimate and kind of special event. 
Well, looking at your, your body of work between Shakespeare, between Copenhagen and uh, Three Penny Opera and Cabaret, very different sorts of shows than one you're in currently now. The clean, and, and also, the and, diff- and different still, I worked with this Chinese director for a year, Chen Shizheng, for a wow. piece that we created for the Lincoln Center Festival uh, a year ago that was uh, – we started with it – was, it was in cooperation with the Royal Danish Theater and it was about the – some celebration of Hans Christian Andersen. So we started with a thousand pages of stories and Stephen Merritt, the composer, and Eric Eng, the writer. And we worked for on and off for a year putting together this piece. And in the end, um, Fiona Shaw played Hans Christian Andersen, Mia Maestro, that gorgeous Argentinian actress, um, and I and Shen Yi and uh, Mary Lou Rosado ended up playing this whole piece, and that was all about singing that Stephen Merritt of Magnetic Fields, some of your um, audience will know, his work wrote songs for us in this completely strange, bizarre, half-Chinese, half-American take on a Danish writer. Well, looking at at all your stage work, and I guess also including your film and your television work, Mm. how do you decide what you're going to do when when you look at a a role? What what, what do you consider? Um, you know, one is pragmatic. An actor's life is what's the best that's available to you at any given time. Um, how much money do you need? <laughs> how broke are you? <laughs> yeah, how broke are you? I mean, I must say, audio books. Years, years, years ago, uh, Lawrence Luckinbill wrote a piece for the New York Times in the Sunday section about, oh, we have subsidized theater. It's um, it's actors doing commercials and voiceovers on the side. And I thought, well, that's it. My, I do audio books and film narration, and that actually pays for my theater habit because you actually cannot make a living um, consistently in the theater in New York. That's actually not really possible. So you have to do other things. And I think this is true of theater in general now, whether you're a writer, a director, a designer, an actor. You have to have an entrepreneurial sense about your craft to survive. But when those bills are about to be paid and you see a role that you don't want to do, how do you turn it down then? Uh, you take it and you try and figure out. <laughs> you try and stretch it however you can. It's hard. It is hard. There's, I'm, I'm, there's no joke about that. It's not, it's not for the, uh, the, the timid, <laughs> the arts. It really isn't. It's mm. not. Well, John's been asking about your roles, but you have also started working as a director. Mm. And, and why that transition? And tell us, tell mm. us about that work. Well, it's interesting. When I was working on... Um, uh, the Tempest. Jess Goldstein, who's a wonderful uh, costume designer in New York, uh, I'd gone to his house and we had a fitting and we were just looking at kind of early stages of the costume. And we had a whole conversation. We talked for about 45 minutes about blue, the color blue. Um, because Emily and I were trying to decide, she felt the character was in red and I was so sure she wore blue. And so we had this really interesting, it's so wonderful to make all this stuff up, right? You know, it's really. And um, so Jess called a few hours later. He said, I don't really know you. And he said, this may be out of line. He said, but have you ever directed for the theater? And I said, well, no, but I've been, he said, you think like a director. And it was actually just that little kick that I needed for somebody to say, you should do this. I mean, it's always available for you to get out and try and do something other. But I realized that I was long overdue, that the very reason that I say I choose the best play rather than the best part, um, told me something more about what really interested me about theater, which was the overall. And that part of the frustration sometimes being an actor was not having as much input to the overall as I would like. Uh, and that 
I think a lot about how it sounds and how it looks and what the lights are and what the colors are and how it feels and how it moves and what the pace is. And that's not always good for an actor because you I, I was very careful in this experience to and have been since I started directing to not be the director. That's not my job. Um, but I must say it's also sometimes frustrating as well because um, there's a part of me that goes, well, I could fix that. You know, and you think, well, that's arrogance because actually maybe you can or maybe you'd make it worse. <laughs> but there is that sort of impetus. So I think also, as I say, I have worked so much happily and had so many good parts. I want to do Camino Real again, play Marguerite, Marguerite Gautier in that again. We did a wonderful production at Williamstown with Richard Easton and Ethan Hawke and um, that Nicky Martin directed. I wanted, And Hope Davis was in. We wanted, I'd love to do that again. But what I found was I was getting to a place where I didn't just want to do another job. I mean, and I have to work for a living. It's not like I have money that I can not work. I am a working person. I'm a wage slave. And I started to I, – actually, again, all good things seem to come back to the McCarter Theater and Emily Mann. She called and said, have you ever heard of a Fox Fellowship? And I said, no. And she said, well, it's given to actors. At that point, it's changed now. But it was it was a gift of money and time to actors who had worked for a, a time in the profession to really investigate something that interested you. And in the process of writing the application for this, it it made me call Chen Shisheng because I'd seen his work before. And I thought, I'll call him. I'll call him and say, could I come and observe and he said, well, do you want to work? And so that, that turned out. But in this whole process that started several years ago, it made me just really reexamine what I was on about. And I thought, I will be an actor my whole life. I hope that my fate is that I drop dead during a matinee. You know? And then they say, this evening's performance will be paid by, played by. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of an actor's dream in a way. Um, but that I wanted to do something else. And that started it. And then I was fortunate enough by by chance, to meet a writer named Leslie Avazian, and she wanted me to do a play of hers. And then I did two plays of hers, and then I, uh, which were marvelous experiences, very different kind of work. And then I'm now working with two young writers, one a young woman named Sarah Treem, who's just out of Yale, who's written a play called A Feminine Ending about an, a female oboe player who wants to be a composer. It's a gorgeous jewel of a play. It has... Some of the it is a very different voice than Sarah Rules, but it has a kind of magic that is a musician similar. who wants to be a composer, directed by an actor who's, who's getting into yes, directing. That's right. Okay. And uh, we did it at a, a festival in Portland, Oregon, this summer, and we're now going to um, do the uh, premiere it out there in the fall. And then I'm working with a an even younger writer just out of Juilliard, Tommy Smith, who has written an extraordinary play about Tchaikovsky, Schoenberg, and Gesualdo. And this is a young man who is really examining life and art, how it inspires, how it confounds the one to the other in regards to these three innovative musical geniuses when they were young, as the work is starting. It's really fascinating. It runs in parallel. You read the play in columns. It's a play that goes in and out. And uh, we've just – yesterday we happily got some money to do a workshop on this and well, hope I as you're getting involved in this new area, this new directing, I hope that will not preclude acting. It doesn't. It doesn't. But it's just another way to sort of be to be inspired. I mean, my heart. I I made a I had a, a good time doing Molly Dodd, but it was actually a bit like doing theater on film. We had 
playwrights. Rick Dresser was our story editor, who's a playwright. Um, Eric Overmeyer, um, uh, Cindy Lou Johnson. We had all kinds of playwrights who wrote our little 23-minute plays. And your casts were the best we're of all, all Broadway. Exactly. <laughs> they were. They were. So that was kind of weirdly deceptive. And I kind of thought Jay Tarsus, who was the writer-producer of that, kept saying, we're really damn lucky. You don't have any idea how lucky we are. And I kept thinking, but this seems so easy and so right. Just do the work with people that you admire and off you go. We were lucky. I don't think, you know, it would be, find its way to the air now. So in a funny way, that was my doing theater again. And then my husband, my son's father died, and he then, we, when he got into sort of junior high and high school years, we really needed to stay in one place. You can't keep, you know, that's the end of the vagabond days in that regard, and particularly as a single parent. So I came back to New York, and then I was incredibly lucky because you can't plan what seasons are there. Um, that those plays came along and that I was cast in those plays at exactly the right moment so I could be here all through his high school time. Well, you've used the word lucky several times, and yeah. audiences are lucky to be able to see you at the oh, New House Theater in thanks. a clean house thanks. now through January 28th, I believe. That's exactly right. At the, yes, at the we New got a little respite here. At yeah. Lincoln Center in New York. Indeed. Thanks. Blair, thanks so much for being with us My today pleasure. on Downstate Thank Center. you. Thanks. Thank you, Blair. Thanks for, a lot. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's fun, guys. It was like a near-death experience. It was like, oh, my God, all those things you see, you see your life flashing I know, it's you. true. It I, like I will say this, and I don't say this. That's one of the best interviews we've ever done. Yeah. Oh, great, thanks. And why are you seeing the Thanks. Could oh, you yeah. do some promos for us? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, you can change it any way you yeah. want. No, I'll just... I'll I'm gonna-